20, we see Jesus increment 276, and I'm simply going to put a label on that called Cosmicon, K-O-S-M-I-K-O-N. That word happens to make a, an appearance in the Greek text of Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1, Cosmicon, or as it appears in the Lemma and the Lexicons, Cosmicos, Cosmicos, Cosmicon, or Cosmicos. And we will go there for the ministry of the word today or tonight. Wednesday night, April 19th, to, first of all, Hebrews 8.13. And Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to gather around the word. And I entrust to you, my spirit, for the purpose of teaching your word, which I take is a very serious responsibility. Only the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of grace can make things clear and may our Lord Jesus Christ be clearly manifested today through the word and through the spirit. And I ask it in his name, amen. Hebrews 8.13, as we have alluded to times before, by saying new, he makes the first, and that is covenant. The ellipsis is there, doesn't have the word covenant and it has to be supplied. Context supplies it by saying new, meaning the new covenant, he makes the old, that means the old covenant, obsolete. Now what is old and aging is close to vanishing altogether. We've seen in this an AD 70 trajectory with the vanishing altogether of the old being dramatically historically illustrated with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and in fact the destruction of that city which the writer says in Hebrews 13, 14, here we have no permanent city, no continuing city, no eternal city. So there is again the AD 70 trajectory in Hebrews. In fact, maybe we'll label this message, no matter how much we get into the trajectory, we'll label, we'll label this message the AD 70 trajectory in Hebrews part four. Parts 1, 2, and 3 were in increments 268, 270, and 274. If you want to hold that together as a single theme or a single arc of, of coherence or a single little book uh, that you can read on your own. Hebrews 8.13, by saying new, and he refers to the Lord saying new through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, he makes the first obsolete. Now what is old and aging is close to vanishing altogether. Going right into chapter 9, verse 1, now indeed the first, once again he's referring to the first covenant, had associated with it regulations for service. We'll look at that word for service down the road a little bit, but, and a this worldly sanctuary. That's what I'm going to translate cosmicon as for now, just for now this worldly, a this worldly. And the word can also mean earthly or it can also mean 
cosmic, to make a direct transliteration. The word cosmicon, as it appears in the Greek text here, has then at least three meanings or three nuances of meaning. It means earthly or of this earth, putting it in opposition to the heavenly or of heaven. Or it can mean this worldly, meaning of this worldly tabernacle or tent or structure in contrast to that which is of future world. So spatially, it would be earthly as opposed to heavenly. Temporally, it would be this worldly in contrast to that which is of future world. Both of these meanings and or probably better nuances of meaning can pertain to this verse and its context. But cosmicon also has another important connotation. Now I said somewhere along the line in our teaching of Hebrews that Hebrews does in fact display the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. And that theme in fact is something I've made central to my teaching of Revelation, my teaching of Better Call Paul, my teaching of Romans, and my teaching of Hebrews so far. So we're, I want to look at it from this little twist today. The word cosmicon also has an important connotation which means of the universe. In fact, it can point to a universal significance to the Jews, and we've learned this from looking at 2 Peter 3, 8 to 18 and from large sections of Josephus and in previous increments. To the Jew, the temple had a universal significance, and the temple is just another structural connotation of the tent, the earthly tent, the earthly temple, the stone temple. And we saw that it had a universal significance. Aristotle also, who predated the writing of this epistle by three or hundred years or so, Aristotle, the philosopher, used that word cosmicon in that sense in relation to the universe also. There's no reason why the Hebrews writer wouldn't have been aware of that denotation of the word. So it can point to universal significance. In this connection, let's consider a couple things brought out in the commentary by Craig Coaster, K-O-E-S-T-R, I guess that's how you pronounce it. And he's one of the commentaries or commentators I've been reading from Hebrews, and I decided to take a look at that afresh. I've already read his commentary up through Hebrews 10:18 or so, but I decided to look back a little bit and found a couple of passages that I marked with a double Q, which is a quotable quote. And so Coaster, while simultaneously recalling what we discovered by an exegesis of 2 Peter 3, 8 to 18, we might find something of significance out of this. Coaster refers to the Judaism and Judaistic apologists or how the Jew would deal with the significance of the temple. 
And let's consider that while simultaneously recalling what we discovered in our exegesis of 2 Peter 3.18, where he talks about the new heavens and the new earth, and we, we related it to the temple, and also Josephus' description of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and its perceived, please note it, universal significance, or its significance as portraying the universe or all of God's creation. I'm going to give you a couple quotes from Coaster. First of all, from his page 393 to 394 in his commentary on Hebrews, he said the mosaic sanctuary was earthly, and then he used the word cosmikos in parentheses, in that it was located upon earth. He refer, then he refers to Hebrews 8.4, within the cosmos. And then he refers to Hebrews 4.3 and 10.5. In Hebrews, the earthly sanctuary, he says, is the earthly tent that was contrasted with the true and the heavenly, both true and heavenly in quotes, one in Hebrews 8.1-5. To be earthly, he says, this is Coaster, to be earthly is to be limited in significance. So I'm going to read that quote again. The Mosaic Sanctuary was earthly, cosmikos, in that it was located upon the earth within the cosmos. In Hebrews, the earthly sanctuary is of the earthly, is the earthly tent which was contrasted with the true and heavenly one in Hebrews 8, 1 to 5. To be earthly is to be limited in significance. Then, eight or nine pages later, or seven or eight pages later, pages 401 and page 402 in his commentary, he says this. It's a little, little longer quote. Apologists for Judaism argued that the biblical sanctuary reflected the structure of creation and that Jewish law brought one into harmony with nature and its creator. The tabernacle's two chambers were said to represent earth and heaven. The four colors on the curtain recalled the four elements. The seven branches of the lampstand symbolized the seven planets. Now back then, the seven planets were known to them as the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. That was to the Jew at the time in the first century and before the seven planets. They regarded as, we would not today, but they regarded the seven planets once again as the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, all of which were observable to them without our current technology. So he goes on to say, the tabernacle's two chambers were said to represent earth and heaven, etc., and the four colors of the curtain recalled the four elements, the seven branches of the lampstand symbolized the seven planets, in quotes. The 12 loaves stood for the 12 months, and the incense altar indicated thanksgiving for the elements. The service of the priests were said to be of cosmikos or cosmikos or universal significance. Let me say that again. This is a quote from Coaster. The services of the priests were said to be cosmikos or 
universal in their significance of cosmicos adjective or universal significance. He said universal significance. He quotes Josephus, Jewish Wars, book four, line 324. And those who worshiped with right intent could come to share the eternal life, this is also in quotes, the eternal life of the sun and moon and the whole cosmos. They regarded the creation and the cosmos, the universe, as eternal as did Aristotle and others, as Philo also indicates in his book on Moses, book 2, 108, also book 2, line 48. Hebrews, this is again Coaster, Hebrews uses similar language to argue in the opposite direction, however. The author does not call the first covenant's sanctuary cosmikos, Hebrews 9.1, in order to show the universal significance of Jewish worship, but to show the earthly and therefore limited value of the Mosaic institutions, and that would include, I would say, the new covenant or the old covenant. So let me read that again quickly to capture the sense. Apologists for Judaism argued that the biblical sanctuary reflected the structure of creation and that Jewish law brought one into harmony with nature and its creator. The tabernacle's two chambers were said to represent earth and heaven. Four colors on the earth curtain recalled the four elements, the seven branches of the lampstand symbolized the seven planets, the 12 loaves stood for the 12 months, and the incense altar indicated thanksgiving for the elements. The services of the priest were said to be cosmicos, or be of cosmicos, or universal significance. Now, let's think of another priest whose work indeed and service indeed had and has universal significance, universal redemptive significance, universal saving significance. He goes on to say, and those who worshiped with right intent could come to share the eternal life of the sun and the moon and the whole cosmos. Hebrews uses similar language to argue in the opposite direction, says Coaster. The author does not call the first covenant sanctuary cosmicos in order, in Hebrews 9.1, in order to show the universal significance of Jewish worship, but to show the earthly and therefore limited value of Mosaic institutions. I'll pause to note two things about this. One. It's interesting that the 12 loaves represented 12 months, and that indicates a temporal value, a temporal value of this temple. And the planets indicated the celestial value or the spatial value of the temple. So all times and all things are both represented by the temple. Interestingly, Jesus Christ, the true temple, also encompasses not only all of spatial creation, but all of temporal creation, because in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that's when all time becomes simultaneous, God will sum up all things in the heavens and the earth spatially in Jesus Christ. So everything gets summed up in Jesus Christ. That is so significant as to defy description. It is so 
awesome as to defy articulation. The second thing I want to reemphasize is that term universal significance. And so we'll carry on from there with that notion, with that universal significance. In my view, therefore, it is not only faintly possible, but possibly somewhat probable that the Hebrews writer had in mind the universal significance of the temple to Judaism because it was something touted by Jewish apologists in the time of the writing that he would have been very aware of and that also he was well aware of Philo who was a basically a contemporary of his and the Judaism of his time would have seen the universal significance of the temple so he may have in fact been referring to Cosmikos as a universally significant temple because he was taking on the thought of his contemporary Jews. They were looking at the temple as having universal significance. He was taking that thought and moving it over to the service, not of the priests of the Old Covenant, which was, which was about to vanish away, but to the one time, the one priest, the great archpriest of the New Covenant, whose service is universally significant indeed and the salvation that he wrought eternally significant indeed and the redemption that he wrought universal and eternal indeed and so he's his service is also universal because in the power of an indestructible life he makes intercession for us to save us completely so i'll say it again in my view it is not only faintly possible, but possibly somewhat probable that the Hebrews writer had in mind the universal significance of the temple to Judaism and that he played on this to shift that significance and to show that not the temporary earthly tent or temple had universal significance, the one associated with the old covenant, but that they pointed to Jesus Christ, whose significance is both universal and saving or redemptive. For Jesus, Yeshua, Yahoshua, the God who saves, is the God who saves in Psalm 68.20. In fact, Titus 2.12 gives us another meaning for cosmikos. And there, the nuance of meaning means worldly in the sense of having the character of the present evil age. And that brings the temple into its focus, its negative focus. Jesus had an adversarial relationship to the temple, which is why he cleansed the temple, which is why he said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. I'll raise it up in three days' time. It took 47 years to build it and refurbish it by Herod's orders. I'll build it up. I'll rebuild it in three days, speaking of the temple, which is his body. So the temple had an adversarial relationship to him. It had come into the, corruptive, the corruption of this evil age. Paul likened the present Jerusalem to a an enslaving system in Galatians opposed to the above Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
And so Titus 2.12, the word cosmikos used again to mean worldly in the sense of having the character of this corrupt present evil age also is fitting here. This is indeed the character that the old tent and the old temple had taken on in its opposition to Jesus Christ. For that reason alone, but also for others, it was on the verge of disappearing altogether. It seems that the writer, in a rhetorically backhanded way, is deliberately trying to showcase the universally saving significance of Jesus and the unlimited redemptive impact of his self-sacrifice at the termini of the ages. The termini of the ages. And we've seen what that is. And I, I think I'll take a look at it again. I wasn't going to do this, but suntaleia. And the reason for this is because this is extremely significant in the overall view of Hebrews. What I'm doing here now is beyond the commentaries, or at least not part of the commentaries. We're going beyond what commentaries teach, and so I want to make some things clear. In my view, it's not, it is not from a commentary, and I've read nine or ten of them on this now so far. I'm in the midst of reading nine or ten of them. But only this is what I'm taking responsibility for as a teacher. It's my view that Cosmicos has a kind of backhanded rhetorical reference to the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ because he's deliberately trying to showcase the universal saving significance of Jesus and the unlimited redemptive impact of his self-sacrifice at the termini of the ages. That's the suntalia, is what I call the termini of the ages. Termini. And that's a plural, because it's ages plural. The termini of the ages, suntelia. And that is referring to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The death of these, the cross which he endured came at the termini, the suntelia of the two ages. The end of the ages, the end of the old covenant age, and the beginning of the new covenant age, is when Jesus died, the new covenant age began. So termini means the end of one age and the start of another. That's where he died. And we're gonna show some more startling things about that that I don't have time to hit today, but maybe hitting on our Sunday messages where we interweave Second Corinthians, especially 5, 14 to 21 with Hebrews. And so, this is where the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of the cross of Christ came together for it says once, now, once at the termini of the ages, he appeared, Jesus Christ appeared for the removal of sin, the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is the service of the one priest that has universal significance. The service of the priests of the old order, of the earthly tent, of the tent of this age, was not an eternally and universally significant service. Jesus Christ's service, Jesus Christ's sacrifice, 
Jesus Christ's priesthood, Jesus Christ's person does have universally saving significance. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In my view, Hebrews 9.26, at least so far, is the central and all-encompassing all declaration or proclamation of Hebrews. It goes with 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he who knew no sin became sin for us, and by becoming sin for us, he put away sin or removed sin once and for all. And this is the great apocalypse that faces us now in our time. And so, this is indeed the case. The character of the temple had become corrupt. Those who touted the temple's greatness called out for the crucifixion of Jesus when Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? They replied, we have no king but Caesar. And so the temple had become adversarial to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ had become adversarial to the temple, kicking over the money tables there, driving out the money changers, proclaiming in Matthew 23, the woes on the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees of his time, which were the priests of that time. Now, I want to move into another gear now, but it will bring everything together. I want you to think of that word, the termini of the ages, and then we're going to continue. One of the great connections of Hebrews with 2 Corinthians, and that's another thing we're doing here. We got a lot of plates in the air. We're spinning a lot of plates, and we're juggling a lot of oranges in the air with this series. One of the great connections of Hebrews with 2 Corinthians is the concept of faith in both of these documents. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we have the definition of faith. Nowhere else in the scripture is there given a definition of faith, per se, straight out like this. This definition can be given both objectively and subjectively. Objectively, we would translate Hebrews 11.1 1 this way. Now, faith is the reality of hoped-for things, the proof of unseen things. That's the objective definition of faith. Subjectively, and I lean a little more heavily on this for Hebrews and, in fact, for the whole of the New Testament. Subjective definition of faith is this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When we're talking about subjects, we're talking about Subjective, subjectively, we're talking about the subject. You are the subject. I am the subject. And as subjects, faith is in us assurance of hoped for things, things God promised for our future. It's also the conviction, the inner conviction, all of its interior. It's the interior conviction of things unseen. You put together the conviction of unseen things and the assurance of hoped for things, and you have intrapsychic stability. You have an internal or interior stability, a kind of resoluteness that holds firm to hope, a kind of resolute faith that perseveres whatever the historical circumstances, whatever the world occurrence that's in your particular time 
whatever the shaking is going on in your particular life or your particular family or your particular profession or circle of friends or your particular local church. And so, objectively, faith is the reality already of the hope for things in us. That's also true. It's the substance of things hoped for that's already present with us in that sense. It's also the proof of the evidence of things not seen in which the faith then becomes the actual doctrine in our soul that documents the unseen things. And so there is, a, there is an objective side to this definition and a subjective side. The objective definition defines faith as that actual interior presence of future world in the believer and the internalized biblical evidence of invisible realities. That's why I can't recommend enough to young people to read your Bible, to memorize verses, to get the scriptures into your soul because at first it may seem like a dead letter expedition where you're just reading dead letter and where you're just reading words on pages and black print on a white page or red print on a white page and it seems that not to have value. But neither does a seed seem to have value. It doesn't have nourishment in itself, but the seed grows. The seed becomes a tree. The seed becomes a fruit-bearing tree. It's well worth getting the scriptures into your soul because it becomes the evidence of unseen realities that, mo that boggle the mind and that great geniuses of our time cannot lay hold of. They seek rightly for truth, but they seek in the wrong places for it. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and the objective definition again defines faith as that actual interior presence of future world in the believer and the internalized biblical evidence, we call it Bible doctrine, the internalized biblical evidence of invisible realities. They're realities not perceptible to natural ways of perception. This objective definition carries weight in the scriptures because Christ is given room to be at home in our hearts by faith, according to Ephesians 3.17. Moreover, faith, or the faith, often enough in scripture, means the body of doctrine which has come down to us in the scriptures, especially that which is called the New Testament. And it's rightly called that as we're gonna discover when we get to Hebrews 9, 15 through 17 again. And where faith is used to describe the body of doctrine which has come down to us in the scriptures, we find that in 1 Timothy 4, 1. The Spirit speaks expressly that some will depart from the faith, meaning the system of doctrine. Also 6.12 of 1 Timothy, 6.21 of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.8 and Jude 1.3. There's an examples of faith objectively speaking. 
Faith is also understood very importantly to mean Christ's faithfulness or even Christ himself because the coming of faith is equated with the coming of Christ, the advent of Christ, the advent of faith, or the advent of faithfulness, Galatians 3.22 to 25. Most often, faith, when described as the possession of individuals, it has the subjective sense. It is the individual's assurance of things hoped for and their conviction of invisible realities. This conviction is not only an inner persuasion of the existence of unseen realities, but it's also the inner confidence in the everlasting nature and essence of invisible realities, such as God, God's throne, Jesus Christ, his son, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the everlasting God, as well as the God-man. Jesus Christ, the son, was man before he became like us in the human essence. He was a man with the essence of Yahweh. He remained a man in essence with Yahweh when he took on human flesh, assumed human flesh. We learned that from Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28 in connection with John 1, 14 and Philippians 2, 5 through 7. He had to take on and assume our kind of human nature and blood and flesh in order to redeem people of blood and flesh. Who does he redeem? Well, everyone with blood and flesh. That's why he took on or assumed the nature of blood and flesh. He became humans. He became a human like us, even though he was already the man, the anthropos above, the anothen anthropon, the man above with the essence of Yahweh. Didn't intend to bring that either today, but that's a profound theological Christological point, and this is a theological exegesis of Hebrews. Now, the message that I intended for today is going to morph into two messages, and it's going to be two relatively brief messages because this is going to hang together, and both of them will relate to the AD 70 trajectory, so the next one will be increment 278, and it will be the AD 70 trajectory in Hebrews part 5. But I want to just round this off first. We want to deal with the nature of faith and the connection of faith with 2 Corinthians and Hebrews. But first, I want to make clear once again this definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1, 1, that it has both an objective and a subjective meaning. And once again, the objective, we would translate Hebrews 11.1 1 in the objective sense this way. Now, faith is the reality of hope for things, the proof of unseen things. Subjectively, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, how is that working for us now? Well, 
think about this because the connection is to Hebrews or to 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at this again. I'm going to do this again in the next Wednesday's increment a little bit to bring this up again. But 2 Corinthians 4.18 says this. While we look not at the things which are seen. See the connection there? Things which are seen. Hebrews 11.1. 1, faith is the conviction of things not seen. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, Paul says. For the things which are unseen are eternal. They're everlasting. Probably a better definition. They're everlasting. The things which are seen are evanescent, transitory, transient. They pass away like the old covenant. They are they become obsolete. They pass away. They become antiquated. And they become old. And what becomes old is close to vanishing altogether. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things that are seen are transient, evanescent. The things that are not seen, the things Paul's talking about that are not seen, or invisible are everlasting and eternal like the new covenant like the heavenly tent like the heavenly new temple like the heavenly new Jerusalem like the city for which we are looking for here we have no permanent continuing city there's no metropolis in this world today that's going to last forever, that has permanence associated with it. And so there's the connection, 2 Corinthians 4.18 with Hebrews 11.1. 1. But what is it, how are we going to apply this to us? I've said many times we live in the time in between. The time in between two radical, eschatological, permanent, universal, alterations and it's only by faith that these alterations are perceived Hebrews 11 deals with two kinds of things that we see by faith or things that we focus on by faith things hoped for things unseen under the rubric of things unseen are both radical eschatological permanent universal alterations and by that I mean what is not seen by any means of human perception including AI's perception what is seen what is not seen by any means of natural perception or technological perception or robotic perception or any other kind of perception is an alteration that occurred already when 2 Corinthians 5.19 occurred, when Hebrews 9.26 occurred. What happened that is not seen is that Christ appeared, that was seen, to put away sin that wasn't seen by the self-sacrifice, by his self-sacrifice, once and for all put away sin. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is an unseen, permanent, eschatological, radical, universal alteration 
of the situation of all creation and all of humanity. It's unseen. Faith is the conviction of that unseen reality. Do you realize the precious gift that you have if you have faith? If we have faith, we have the ability to perceive that radical, universal alteration of the human situation that occurred in the death of the cross endured by our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith perceives it. So faith saves us in this time in between from the despair of looking at the human condition and seeing people like trees walking or seeing people as doomed objects of a godless destiny. Instead, we see a reconciled world by faith. We'll be called crazy because the world can't perceive that and if someone perceives that, e they either have a supernatural gift of perception that is not given to them yet, and that is the case, or they have a distorted and insane perception of reality. So by faith we perceive the unseen reality. We have a conviction of that unseen reality. That is life-changing. It changes how you view people. It changes how you view creation. It, it changes how you view dogs and cats and birds in the air and, the sun, and space and planets and the sun and the moon and every single person and your neighbor and your enemies, if you have any. Now, there's also things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for. What, is, what are the things hoped for? Future world. The thing that's hoped for is a permanent, radical, eschatological alteration of all of creation. It's liberation from slavery to corruption. We find that again, and I refer to it over and over again because it's worth referring to over and over again in our time. Romans 8, 19 to 23, the whole thing's kind of encapsulated there. When Jesus Christ, the great archpriest, makes a second appearance, it's to bring that radical change of condition to the whole universe. But that within that radical change that alteration, that eschatological, permanent, radical alteration of the creation in general, there is within that a most significant change of our bodily construction. For flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and so God has done something about it. By resurrection, he makes us immortal, incorruptible, deathless, and grants us the capability of inheriting in totality the kingdom of God, inheriting life and livingness and immortality in that kingdom. And so what faith hopes for, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What is hoped for above all 
is the coming of Christ in which that radical alteration of the condition happens. So what is not seen is both the radical alteration of the human situation and the creation situation that occurred in Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, all as one event, and what is also unseen is the change of condition that is yet to be. But the change of condition that is yet to be is not only something unseen, but it fulfills the hoped for realities too. So right in between these two radical alterations is where we live. We live in the overlap of the ages as it were. We live in, a, in an agona. We live in a time of great struggle and conflict. Suffering is inevitable. Ours is inevitable. Our afflictions are not only inevitable, but they're appointed to us as being the means of conforming us to the image of our Savior, our, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in between, we have this commodity, this invaluable, privileged wealth called faith there's a danger when we think that we our personal faith does not justify or save us eternally but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ does the danger right at that realization is that we would somehow then demean faith itself our personal faith itself and we must not do that because faith is a supernatural giftedness that God gives us. And I'm gonna clarify that even more and define faith even more because that's what the Holy Spirit seems to be directing me to do now in a way that I didn't anticipate. What is faith? Well, we know it now to be an invaluable means of perceiving things that are astonishing. Scientists get astonished with what they discover of what they can observe by sight. And there are many observ observable realities that are astonishing today, especially with the capability we have to see billions of years not only into space, but into the past. But that pales in comparison with what faith perceives of the invisible realities and that's what this whole thing is about for the 276th time we see Jesus and that's all I'm going to do in this increment and I'm going to take up in our next increment next not this Sunday's but next Wednesday I'm going to take up in increment 278 a, the furtherance of this topic on faith and then move into some other, other things also. So, Father, we, we pray that you'll, well, at least, I pray that the least you'll do in all of us who heard this message today is show us the amazing value of faith. I almost said incredible value of faith, but that would be a kind of oxymoron, incredible gift of credibility and faith. We thank you, Father, that 
you have granted us the gift of faith, a supernatural capacity to perceive unseen and invisible realities, the greatest of which is Jesus, the greatest of which, Father, is you, for to see Jesus is to see you with the invisible, enlightened eyes of our heart. Stabilize us, Father, as a community of believers within the larger community of the New Covenant community, within the larger still community of the, re the reconciled community, which is the world. Strengthen us and stabilize us in the midst of world occurrence, in the midst of the events and the trials, the tests of the agona that we are appointed to undergo. May we undergo them with courage, with confidence, and most of all, under the control of the love of Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.